0: In Galatians, a man, what a book! What a book to be in. Uh, one of, if not the first epistles written, kind of Galatians and James are some of the earliest epistles, uh, letters to the churches that we have. Uh, Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul, who was changed by Jesus while he was on his way to persecute Christians. James, written by uh, the half brother of Jesus. Uh, we say half brother because he didn't have God as his father in the way that Jesus does, the Son of God has. Uh, but James, written by the half-brother of Jesus, who wasn't. We might think he was one of the 12 kind of disciples, apostles. He wasn't. James believed in Jesus, his brother, later. Uh, So he came to faith later during Jesus' ministry, not uh, he wasn't one of the ones invited in, which would make sense, because if I were to invite 12 guys into a group, I probably wouldn't invite my brother either. Um, And so we get it. Uh, But we get to go through these books, and they really do lay kind of two uh, parallel, but intertwined aspects of our faith. Galatians is going to provide for us as a church a lot of uh, understanding as to what it means to be saved. What does it mean to, to belong to the Lord? And what, what should we avoid uh, in always feeling tempted to add to the simple message that Jesus saved sinners like us? Like, like that he died for us in our sins. Through faith in him we have life. Our temptation is a people to always add to that message is what Paul is writing against in Galatians. James is written in such a way that he assumes Galatians and its content and basically says, this is how you should live. This is how your life should look. Uh, if you really say these things are true, sh- show it. Um, and so we're going in this order because I, information and kind of the truth of uh, what Jesus has done, should, you know, how we a- apply it flows from that. And so we don't want to kind of put those in reverse order that I had originally thought about it just to confuse us, but that doesn't help. Um, thought about James first, but we really just need to keep hearing, what has Jesus done for us? What has Jesus done for us? Uh, so we'll be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 3. We're kind of going at a pace of uh, a chapter takes two weeks. I don't know why that is happening the way that it is, but I think chapter 4 is going to take three weeks. So we'll, we'll break that uh, cycle here pretty soon. Galatians chapter 3, we'll be in verses... 15 through 29, or 15 through the end of the passage. So here we start in verse 15. To give a human example, interesting way to start, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified, or stamped, sealed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise, be the promise given to Abraham, void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." God, you have given promises. You are a promise-giving, promise-making, promise-keeping God. And the promises are ancient. They existed in you even before creation. And yet we, this morning, the people gathered in this room, get to experience them here and now. Things you have spoken thousands of years ago to Abraham come alive today. We're grateful. As you remember your promise to Abraham today, we need to see it clearly and realize, God, that it's available for us. Keep us near. Be near to us. As we go through your word today, guard our hearts and minds from error and distraction. And we ask this knowing that you hear us because we are in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so in that passage, there were a lot of words. So it was like, man, this is like, what are you saying? So this chapter three here, towards the end, is might feel a little, uh, a little different than other ones. Sometimes we just follow like, man, just make it, you know, make it easy for me to understand. But he's Paul kind of setting up this argument as to why the promise is more significant because we just ended uh, last week with we have the Spirit through faith, and so then he goes into this illustration. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, And and sometimes in ancient, you know, ancient world, Paul mind, like, let me tell you what I mean. And we read it like, you even made it more confusing. You made it harder for me to get. Why did you do that? Well, they get it better sometimes than we do. But I just want to take a moment and just think about life in church. If you're unfamiliar with church life, you're blessed. Because it doesn't take much time to exist within a local church. By local, I mean a specific group of people. Before you start hearing stories of divisions, and splits, and disagreements, and fractures, and brokenness. I would guess, just, just Hans's observational guess, and probably yours too, it takes five to ten years of being involved in a church before you'll catch wind of something. And some of you are going, five to ten, that's pretty generous Hans, huh? more like you know five to ten months. Some way that people don't agree or some church that used to be a part of another church or some group or voting block uh, that got upset about something and uh, with whom people got upset. Not necessarily, you know, the songs. We always love songs, but uh, we go, we're upset about something. And there are issues as I think about church life and what might come. There are issues that I myself have seen or heard or lived Uh, I'm not telling you which ones these are. So these are just things I've seen, heard, or lived either in my own life or uh, in lives of my friends because I do live vicariously through many of my friends. But here is one. Worship style. Mm. Hmm... it's funny because even songs like King of Kings, we're like, well, I don't want to sing that song. But like, it's so richly it's doxological. It is, it is creedal in its language. We're like, I don't like it because it's you know, made from this worship group. I don't like to sing the same thing more than once in a song. Okay. But people don't like the new worship pastor, his guitar, or his songs, or his looks, uh, which we love Matt. He's not here this morning, so I can rail on him a little bit. But this can include the tone of the service, the feel, the stiffness or looseness of the service and the people in it. Is Hans wearing jeans? He is. Are they several years old? They are. Do they get washed enough? They do not. Um, But worship, and, and, and what I mean by worship is I mean the moment of the service. The 60, 75, 90, depending on your church, maybe the four hours that you spend there. Um become rather significant for people. And if something changes, they're like, I'm out. I'm out. I don't want to do this. If you grew up or, you know, 10 to 20 years ago then you, in church life, and you remember worship wars, worship wars, and you'd be like, well, we'll have a traditional, we'll have a contemporary, we'll have a this, we'll have a that, we'll do this, we'll do that, you know, to try and just go, we know we can't all get along, so let's just try to get along within the same space over the course of three hours. You don't know, have to see each other. Another thing that divides us, and I'm saying smaller points of doctrine, not to say that bigger points of doctrine don't divide us because they do. Uh, I mean smaller points of doctrine because what Paul is taking a hammer to in the book of Galatians are the significant points of doctrine. And And he has said straight up, if you hear me preach a gospel different than what I already gave you, let me be eternally condemned. He's already said that. If you hear something that that comes out of my mouth different than what I said about how men and women and children are saved, how they are right with God, eternally condemned. Churches absolutely need to preserve sound doctrine, and they need Jesus. They need to recognize he's sent from the Father. They need to hold that in high regard. They need to recognize the Spirit that is indwelling us. They're non-negotiables, but sometimes churches get divided up over other issues. Smaller issues, less significant issues. We go. Well, I can't be with you because you have a view of food like X, or you do these things, or you handle the you know life in these ways. And they just divide. They're out. Can't do it. One that we feel in Texas and uh, in many places, but race and class, or race or class, these can come together. They can be separate. Uh, Churches are often, and anybody who can just observe churches, the people in them can see this, that they are often segregated along racial lines and class lines. That you can't get in and out of churches that don't have people who don't look like you. You can't operate. There's a way people speak, there's a way they know, be it their educational status, be it their income that they make, the jobs that they have. Uh, that churches divide up over these things, and we uh, we try to make it sound like it's okay. Go, oh, it's okay because um, you know we're just different. But what you're really doing is perpetuating a feeling of being better, better, more superior, uh, and so that's one that you'll see fracture, fracture, churches because others people feel like they don't fit in because they don't have the right clothing, or they don't fit in because they don't have the right skin color, or they uh, don't fit in because their churches exist on the wrong side of the tracks, and they just don't feel as if this environment or another environment is better for them, that they can't find God here because everybody else knows how to kind of operate. You have likely seen, just guessing, but seen or experienced or been a part of one or more of these. And you have another 5, 10, or 15 examples to go on the ways that people divide. And this is the hard part. that When you peel that back, inherent within these ideas of divisions and fractures, is the underlying assumption that there is a way to operate that is right and a way to operate that is wrong. There's a way of just kind of existing here. It's like we have it together and they don't have it together. We have a superior view of God. They have an inferior view of God. And I get it. We all want to hold our positions the way that we do. Um, But we will even kind of track down to go, I know how to work and you don't know how to work. I know how to be nice and you don't know how to be nice. I know how to parent and you don't know how to parent. I know how to handle my money and you don't know how to handle your money. And we just kind of keep going down the line and creating these ways in which we feel superior, better than other people. And we've talked about it before and I just want... This story that Jesus tells to be so clear in our hearts, when he tells the story of the sinner and the Pharisee who go to pray, and the sinner goes, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee goes, God, thank you so much that I'm not like the sinner. We're this one. We're the one who says, God, thank you so much that I'm not like this person. That's how we operate. Because what will happen, right? We'll go on a mission trip, a short-term mission trip. And we will see somebody there and we'll go, oh God, thank you so much. that what? I have what I have. Why is that any better? The the amount of issues and broken marriages and dissatisfaction and affairs that happen in upper middle class life are so significant. You're like, thank you God so much that I don't have those problems. I'm sure there are many people who look at you and go, thank you God that I don't have their problems.'" So we can't really do that, right? We can't actually go, though I have it together. Because that's antithetical to what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has said to us, no, you don't actually have it together. Through faith in me, you can be restored to God. And then you really spend the rest of your life just realizing how not put together you actually are. If you're walking a road that leads to greater humility with the Lord, greater servanthood. So if you've been with us at all as we've been in this Galatians series, then you know at least in your head that we can't believe like that. That Jesus changes us. Our status with God isn't built on the perfectly ordered worship service or the uh, irrefutable doctrinal statement down to the finest point of the precise day and time that Jesus is returning or the right skin color or the right tax bracket. It isn't built on us doing good things in the right order or doing bad things less frequently our status with God is only right because we have been brought into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son it's all we have it's all we have still because it's the world we live in and it's the language that we speak and it's the song of our culture we love the idea of earning favor we love it. We love the idea of doing certain things that make other people like us more it's kind of nice. To feel as if we got something out of the deal. So as we are in the passage this morning, 15 through 29, the end of chapter 3, 15 to the end. It's really Uh, Three things that I think we should look at as the passage breaks down, goes down. First, we'll see that uh, God's blessing, ultimately, is better than rule-following. We should know that, but we don't. God's blessing to us is better than rule-following. Secondly, that uh, what rule-following does, and I'm calling law rule-following. I'll explain why in a second. And then third, how we can all become children of God, which would be great because next week, Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4, we get to kind of go deeper into the idea of what does it mean to be a child of God? What happens there? What's the exchange that happens? And how do we get brought into that family? And what does it do for us? How does it change us and transform us? So first, verses 15 through 18, the first three verses, is that God's blessing is by promise, comes through promise, not rule following. Again, these are things we should know and get, but we don't necessarily know and get. So we see this. Now why do I say rule following and not law? And this is just observational. I don't think there are many people in this room who are overly concerned about God's blessing coming from the Mosaic law and their adherence to it. I'm a little curious how far we could get if we even had to recite the names of the books of the Old Testament. I'm not sure how far we could get down that road. So if we can't maybe necessarily even do that, not really sure how concerned we are about doing the things that it says, if we don't even know maybe all the content of it. And that's not, a, that's not a slight on you. Not a slight on me. But like we recognize that our faith is built in a certain way on the work of the Lord Jesus. And many of us, if not all of us, don't have a Jewish background. And so the understanding and connection that we have to that isn't as strong. And so the idea of following the Mosaic law given down to Moses by God is probably not our biggest concern. But the idea of gaining favor by following rules is. It's the same problem. The same heart problem, even if we're not concerned about whether or not we are pursuing circumcision or uncircumcision. The problem is we want God to like us by doing things. And we want others to like us by doing things. We want other people to feel like God likes them if they do certain things. So that's why I'm saying rule following here, not the Mosaic law. Um, But when Paul's talking about it, he's really talking to the Galatians about their desire to put on the law, put on the Mosaic law and what's going on in all its commands. So we do. We try to secure blessing by following man-made rules. The Spirit's in us. We saw that at the end of uh, last week. But as Paul is developing his argument, starting in verse 15, he's going to start to explain why following the rules doesn't work with the Spirit that's in us. So again, 15 through 18, he says this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, an agreement, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified or established. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. So now he's, I'm giving you the example, and now I'm telling you what I mean. <clears throat> the law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For the inheritance comes by law, it, does no longer come, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he starts with an illustration that I think is kind of lost on us because we don't really care about agreements. He says that a man-made covenant isn't annulled or removed once it is established. Essentially saying this, when you agree to something, you don't then go and embed new language in the terms. I think we would get that. We probably feel it most strongly with our mortgages if we have one. Try not to pay it. See what happens. And then go to your actual mortgage statement where you signed 800 things in the presence of you know lawyers or uh, loan officers or whatever it might have been and just take that paper and write BT-dubs, I never have to pay anything ever. And just show that to your lender and go, well, look, look what it says. They'd say, it doesn't really work that way. We have your signature on the first one. You added language to this one that actually doesn't change anything. So in human illustrations, we often understand, we just say, we'll break anything. But when it comes down to it legally, when there is an agreement between two parties and you try to change it, you can't. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. When there's been an agreement, you can't somehow change that agreement. And he then goes to it in explaining what is going on with the law. Now, he's going to talk about that. He gave a promise to Abraham and the law came later. What promise did he give to Abraham? And why is Paul quoting oddly this kind of collective word offspring and going, well, it doesn't say offsprings with an S. When anybody knows that offspring could mean multiple people. And I think anybody in this room goes offspring, you don't think of one, you think of many. So why is Paul taking so much time to make an argument that doesn't seem to make sense? He goes, he doesn't say offsprings. So clearly he means one when he says offspring. Like that's not, not how it works. But watch. First Genesis twelve seven, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And when he says offspring and land, I think we would probably rightly hear nation of Israel. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you this land and your offspring, your family will fill it. Genesis seventeen eight. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Any normal reader would look at these and go, oh, he's talking about people. Multiple people. Not person. People. So why does Paul make this argument? And you just have to think about it. Just put your thinking brain on for a second. I know sometimes when preacher gets up, you just go, well, see you at 12. But just put your brain on for a second and go, why would he say that? Because it doesn't really make sense. Well, now you have to go back a little further. I think key in Paul's thinking, and it's echoed in other commentators, is something like 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic Covenant. Now, we have the promise to Abraham. We've had the Mosaic law given. We have gone hundreds of years into the future from what he gave to Abraham for me to quote Second Samuel 7. But in 2 Samuel seven twelve, he says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David is an offspring of Abraham. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And so there's this idea now flowing down that there, is off, there are offspring people, but there's going to be one specific big O offspring. There's a unique offspring that's still coming. And you see that in the Davidic covenant, where there's going to be this one who's going to have this scepter, and he's going to rule, and he won't ever lose the kingdom. The offspring is ultimately seen in Jesus. Though there are many offspring in the line, the unique offspring is Christ. So here's how uh, New Testament scholar Doug Moo would put it. I, love, I love his name, that's why I say all the time, Doug Moo. That whole Moo. I, feel, I just feel it. And he says this, especially important in Paul's reading of salvation history, that means the, the process of how God has saved people through time. Especially important in... Paul's reading of salvation history is how God's promises become concentrated in one person, Christ, the seed, through whom the promises those promises become applicable to worldwide people. So it's not that his promises disappear or anything like that. it's that the offspring that Paul is referring to is Jesus. And he's just arguing that ultimately it's, it's, it's going somewhere and it's going to Jesus. It doesn't mean that he doesn't mean offspring multiple at different times. The nation there, the promises given, the work that's given, and the Davidic ruler who is Jesus, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. But at the same time, Paul is reading it with Jesus in mind. He's reading what it said with Jesus in mind. And you look back and you look at Jesus, you go, oh, clearly. Clearly the offspring is Jesus. So there's a promise given to Abraham of offspring and blessing, or really blessing through offspring. And then there's the law. He says, then, then this other thing came in, which is the law. 430 years later, and he's using Exodus 1240 to give you that, that timing. So Exodus 1240 says 430, that's why he's saying it. But what his argument is in this first part is the giving of the law later doesn't change the promise because the promise came first. Now you're probably asking a good question. Why to you give the law? If the promise is better, why give the second thing? And Paul, recognizing your concern here in Spring, Texas, responds to you with verses 19 through 25, where he essentially says this, Rule following, the law increases problems. Transgressions is the language that he uses. But Christ has always been the goal. So that's kind of two things. I wish I could have made that sentence better. I worked on it for a bit. And it's just a bad sentence. It's just wonky. But we'll get to the passage and we'll understand what it means. So you're following along and you say, don't forget the promise. The promise is the blessing of the world. And the promise is more significant than the law. And then there's a whole lot of time where Israel's supposed to follow the law. You now that doesn't make any sense. Why give them something worse? We already saw last week, right, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son into this world. So there's something going on and we'll see what's going on. Starting in verses 19. Why then the law? Why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, which is coming from the statement in Deuteronomy. There's one God. Is the law then, another good question, contrary to the promises of God? Did it mean something has changed in the program? No! For if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would indeed be by the law. We've already seen we can't abide by it all, though. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, and that would be specifically in this talking about Jesus, before uh, faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Until Christ came. Until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Man, again, you just go, what kind of words are you using here, Paul? And why are you saying it this way? So I'm going to say three things here. <clears throat> First, he says this in verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. What does that mean? It was added because of transgressions, like, so we're sinful, so you add the law, so that, like, if I already know I'm sinful, you don't need to add the law, so there's this interesting phrasing of because of, or on account of, transgressions, well, it could be multiple things, but I think, I think what we can see here is that it was added in a way that reveals our transgressions more than we even know, we said last week, once you're told not to do something, what happens? You want to do it. You want to do it. The moment something becomes off limits, you automatically are like, not to me. I can still do it because I'm awesome. Because we become a law to ourselves. We view things as, you know, I'm more important and I'm superior. And so it demonstrates for us that we can't even follow simple rules. Everyone thinks, this is just pastor life so you get used to it. Everyone thinks that their way is best. Everyone, that they, the way they believe, the way they behave, the way they operate. And I'm glad for that because I don't want anybody to operate in a way they think is not best. I don't want anybody to be like, well, you know, I know this is actually a completely lame way to live, but this is just what we've accepted. Like, I don't want that to be the case for anybody. So I get why we live the way that we do. But the moment something shows up, there's this thing that gets incited inside of us. When we're told not to do something, we automatically are like, I'm going to do it. Or we at least, because sometimes we really are proud of our rule following, we at least fantasize about what life would be like had we broken it. We may not get it the wherewithal to break the thing, but we're going to consider what life would be like if we were able to break it. That's what we do. So the law was added because of transgressions. I mean, it incites sin. It shows our inability to keep rules and actually draws out this part of us that wants us to disobey. Now, if we were able to... Think clearly about that. What might happen? We should humble ourselves before the Lord. But that does never seem to work. We never seem to be able to be shown our own sinfulness in such a way that we don't just want to try and outdo our sinfulness by harnessing it, reining it in, doing something different, acting, behaving a certain way. We just don't seem to be able to actually control our sinfulness. And the law demonstrates that. The fact that we can't even follow rules demonstrates that. The fact that we want to disobey demonstrates that. I joked last week, but it wasn't a joke, about speed limits. If you go one mile over the speed limit, are you breaking the law? And you're going, some of you are going, no. Because it's a stupid law. That's what happens. It's stupid. So we don't need to abide by it. I'm sorry, who made you in charge? You ever ask that question to your kids, right? Who made you in charge? I, I'm unsure about how this happened. And so we even will justify our rule breaking by going, well, the rule's dumb. And even that itself shows and reveals a condition of our heart. It reveals that we feel as if we're better. That our view on things is better. But our understanding of things is better, and it just starts to fuel our pride. Now, the law was added because of transgressions, That's that first idea. Second, you go uh, into verse, uh, end of verse 19, into verse 20. The law was temporary, and had an intermediary. It had somebody operating between uh, God and us. The intermediary, which is interesting, is Moses, who brings the law. <clears throat> Moses delivers the law. The intermediary is Moses. The end of verse 19 to 20 are a little interesting because it even talks about um, angels. Come by angels. And there's a part of Jewish tradition about the law and how it came to be and what has happened and in and, and its existence that, that leads to uh, this idea. Put in place by angels through an inter- intermediary, but now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And it was funny, I was even reading somebody who was like, I think the meaning of this section is kind of lost in us. I don't even think we need to know what to do with it. But but I, what seems to be going on, is what he's saying is the law, intermediaries, God and others, Moses and angels, are bringing this about to the nation. So there's multiple people interacting with this. But the promise before the law was given by God. And only God. There was no intermediary. It was one way from God to Abraham. It was declared by God, and it's going to be enforced by God, and God is one. And so that, again, in his argument, makes what he has said to Abraham superior to what has been going on. And you end with that, and you go, well, then, why in the world does the law, you still have the same question, why the law, you just said again, why doesn't that happen? Well, it shows our sinfulness. You go, was the law different than the promises of God? He goes, no, it's not different. Why? Because verse 22, Scripture, that would be the Old Testament, the law, imprisoned everything under sin. Now, sin existed before the law. Okay? Like, Like, sin happened in the garden. So the law shows up all these years later. It's not like it just started, sin just became real then. It just got incited more. That is, the law imprisoned, it made sin evident and revealed our inability to keep it. Which is rather imprisoning, isn't it? When you see parts of your heart and you realize just how difficult it is, not just difficult, impossible it is, to keep a simple rule. A simple state. It can feel rather helpless. And you'll start to use shaming words. You'll start to use words like, man, I should know this by now. How come I can't ever fix this? Why can't I? Man, I mean, I'm just such a fool. Because still even behind that is this thought that I could get it done if I just thought differently or behaved differently or changed something. And I just haven't figured out the magic potion that controls my life in such a way that I feel good about myself. The law imprisoned everything under Christ till faith came. And that means the law did its job. It showed how sinful we were. didn't make us sinful. It revealed it. But now Christ is here and through faith we can be made right with Him. And so the thing that revealed our sinfulness is no longer needed. We don't need this thing anymore. Because what is better, the promise has been seen. So Paul is holding up history and theology to the Galatians, and he's saying you can't go back because going back condemns. Remember, that was their temptation. Let's go back to following rules because that seems better. He's like, it's not better. It's not better because better already came. Backwards is bad. Thinking like that is bad. It's wrong. You need redemption, and you have it in Jesus. It's there for you. Going backwards is harmful. Now I want to stop because there might be a question that uh, we ask from time to time. And so I just want to take a brief moment and, and answer this question. How then were people in the Old Testament saved? You ever thought about that? Jesus shows up and now through we, we know we can have faith in Jesus. But how was an Old Testament person saved? Be it Abraham or David or some family or some clan that we never even heard about. How are they saved? If you have been listening or reading Galatians, then I hope you have, you'll be able to answer it. But faith has always been the requirement. It's not as if the requirement changed. The revelation of Jesus is there, but the requirement hasn't changed. The requirement has always been faith. This is what Paul has been arguing. He argues it again in Romans. God's mode of, of making us right with him has never changed. But we can now more clearly see the object of faith. Even the Old Testament saint was saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because God is consistent, right? He's moving history in a direction. So faith in God's promises as God is revealing them is ultimately fulfilled in the work of Jesus. And so salvation comes to Old Testament saints and New Testament saints in the same way. Through faith. Think about the exodus. The exodus. What did God say on that 10th plague? Put the blood on the doorpost. All in the household will be saved. What do you have to do? Before you even actually make that move, before you paint the doorpost with blood, what do you have to do? believe God. Believe that what he says matters. Believe that that's true. And so belief in God happens before the action of painting the doorposts in the Exodus. Trust in God happens before you work. Before you demonstrate it through your obedience. So the method has been the same, but the revelation of the Savior has now become clear for us. I want to say. So we see that first part that God's blessing is always through Christ and the law incites sin. The goal has been Jesus. And then he ends here with the last three verses, the last four verses. All through faith are one in Christ and children of God. All through faith are one in Christ and children in God. There is no in crowd, there is no out crowd, there is no I do this better than you, I do this better than you, I do this better than you. There's no division in that regard. This is what he says. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You are all. The Jew, the Gentile, all of you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put him on, put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to what? Promise, not law. Remember all those things we talked about and the many more that can divide churches. Standing above them all is the disastrous thought that you can earn God's favor by how you look, how you earn, how you live, how you act. The thought that you're in the in crowd because of something other than what God has done for you in Christ. And the imagery that he gives in verse 26 is not that we are distant relatives. I mean, if you do like Ancestry.com and you find out that 75 generations ago your great 35th cousin 17 times removed was royalty, you're like, oh my gosh, check out my results. And people are looking at you going, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. And yet, through faith, you get to go, God's my dad. God's my dad. Direct line. It's not way down there. It's not... A hundred generations ago, I think there was somebody in my life who felt this way or did this thing. You get to say, God is my father. I have the paperwork to show it. It comes through faith. I have God. And yet, we get so worked up if we had royalty in some distant relationship so long ago. We think we're like the best people in the world. And yet, what do we read in Galatians? All through faith. Are sons of God, better than any other status you could ever want. And in Christ we are all siblings. Sons and daughters of the Father, through faith in Jesus. We have been united through baptism. I think in this passage of, like Paul often puts the water baptism and, and the baptism, just the identification of the spirit together. Uh, Romans 6 does a kind of the same kind of thing and we will separate it. He's not saying baptism saves you because we're identified through the Spirit. But I do think sometimes in Paul's language, he's kind of co- combining baptism and the moment of salvation together. So often we put years between it and church history often does the same thing. Uh, but for him, he's going, you're identified. But it's true. It's true even in your, uh, in, at the moment of faith, you're identified with Jesus. Water baptism aside, the moment of faith you are identified with Jesus. Though sometimes when people put faith in Jesus, they're immediately, and you see this in the book of Acts, identified through water baptism. But still, that comes after faith. That comes after what the Spirit has done in you. There were times as a kid where I'd see other families and I'd think, I wonder what it's like to live in that family. Ever felt that way? I wonder what it's like to, to be there. I'm going to talk more about that next week, but maybe I could move in, be sort of brought into the family, but I'd still actually not belong to the family. Through faith in Jesus, you get to belong to the family. Now, sometimes people use verses 28 uh, and 29, mainly 28, to say well, there's no differences anymore, so anybody can do everything. But we still recognize like there are still men and women in this room, there are adults and there are children. There are people who have been endowed with different gifts that God has given to them. And so uniqueness still exists. His point is not, though some people erroneously say this, his point is not to say that there is now no more uniqueness in the body of Jesus Christ. What he's trying to say is that there's no one better and no one worse in the family of God. Jews aren't better because they have the scriptures, and they've known them first. Gentiles aren't better because they kind of get to bypass that. Men aren't better because in the the country, or in that status, they are uh, seen as the ones who have voting rights, and they're absolutely, they're they're males. Doesn't matter. Free men are not better because they're not slaves, and slaves are not worse because they're not free men. His point in this is you can't divide up the body of It doesn't work. No one gets to say, because I do this, or I have this, or I am this, God loves me. That's what he's saying in verse 28. He's not saying redo your whole ecclesiology. Some people build their whole ecclesiology, like the whole church structure, off of verse 28. That's not how you do it. Because his argument isn't about how the church should look in regards to like elders, deacons, this. That's like, not, not, not how he's arguing. He's arguing over, you've all been brought into the family. Your status has changed. What marks you in the world doesn't mark you in Christ. Christ marks you here. That's what makes God your father, not anything else. But it's difficult to hold this line, isn't it? It's difficult not to want to head into a world of rule-following and rule-keeping simply to make sure that we are aligning with someone or something. We'd like to make different paths to gain God's favor, but we can't. The way to God's favor is through Jesus, the one who always had it, because he is God. So I'd love to say, well, here are the five reasons that you, you can't become a fractured church or you won't become a fractured church, but what do I do when I say that? Make five laws for how you don't become fractured. Talk like this, do this. I, I, The moment I do that, what do I do? I become a Judaizer. Here are the ways you don't become fractured. The only thing, you ever heard this phrase? Oh man, if you grew up in church life, you do. Uh, stay near to the spout where the glory comes out. You ever heard that? Am I the only one? Well... All that means, you're like, oh, that's weird. You like tapping trees before you fall out? The only way, the only way that we can do this and stay together as Genesis is to make Jesus the most important thing. That's it. <laughs> to love Jesus. To recognize that everything we have been given in God as heirs next week, we have because of Jesus. If we stay near to that, I think we're good. The moment we start adding to that, we aren't.